When you look at Acts chapter 25, you may not think there's very much there for us, but I want to remind you that when we preach a sermon, like I did a few weeks ago, that every word of God is pure, we apply that to chapters like this as well, that the Lord has something for us in it, or He wouldn't have given it to us. Amen. I want you to take a few pages in your hands, and let's go back to Acts chapter 19. Because I've studied this book many more hours than you have, and still, because we took a couple weeks off, to jump into Acts 25 is like, where were we in this book? So let's go back to Acts chapter 19 and come forward on this third missionary trip of the Apostle Paul. Remember in Acts chapter 19, we had that rebaptism of the disciples at Ephesus because they had been baptized under the baptism of John the Baptist after Pentecost, which was no longer valid. The rest of this chapter is spent with Paul in the city of Ephesus, and he spent three years there. What a blessing to have the Apostle Paul for three years Amen. as your pastor. Then he left the city. And he went up into Macedonia, visited Philippi and some other churches. And on his way back to Jerusalem, wanting to be there in time for the feast, he stops by Ephesus again. He doesn't visit the city. He asks the elders of Ephesus to come and meet him at Miletus in Acts chapter 20. And for a common point of reference, Acts chapter 20 is primarily his words of comfort, encouragement, and warning to the elders of Ephesus. And we also told here that he's about to be caught and imprisoned, that the Holy Spirit is warning him that bonds and imprisonment await him when he gets to Jerusalem. But he wants to go to Jerusalem anyway. So Acts chapter 21 describes him crossing the Mediterranean Sea. He comes into Caesarea, and there he he lives in Philip's house, the evangelist for a few days who had four daughters that were virgins that did prophesy. I hope you can remember. He comes on into Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, James asks him if he wouldn't do them a favor, and that is to take upon him a Jewish vow, because there's rumors about Paul circulating in Jerusalem, and that is that he's teaching the Jews everywhere else that they can just totally forget the law of Moses. And so Paul goes into the temple to complete a vow with four other men, And he's caught in there by some Jews that don't believe from the city of Ephesus that spotted him. And they took him, drew him out of the temple, tried to kill him. Acts chapter 21. But the Roman centurions and chief captain came and delivered him out of their hands. And while he stands on the palace steps, he asks for permission to address his countrymen. And so Acts chapter 22 is his address. And he preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 22. To those Jews, they listen attentively because he preaches in the Hebrew tongue until he gets to the word Gentiles. And when he mentions the word Gentiles, they go crazy, absolutely crazy, because the Jews hated the Gentiles. And to think that God was going to send any of his special blessings and his gospel to the Gentiles was more than they would receive. And so the chief captain has to deliver Paul once again. Now, because the chief captain wants to know what in the world has this man done that is so horrible that they're trying to kill him. He wants him examined by scourging. That works a whole lot more effectively than the way that the methods that our nation now uses. 
We can be thankful for the gentle nature of our nation, and we can be unthankful for the fact that we have so many men in prison because they still don't know the nature of the case. But the Romans could get right to the bottom of issues by scourging men. You, were, you would tend to tell the truth after 30 or 40 blows with a Roman cat of nine tails. But Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. You don't have a right to beat me under your own Roman laws. And so the chief captain is frightened at this news, and he immediately convenes another session of the Jews, and that's Acts chapter 23, where Paul takes up again before the Jews to defend himself. And here he realizes they don't care about truth, so he divides them because he knows the theological differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. And he admits that he was a Pharisee, his father was a Pharisee, and that he was called in question, the real issue that has me here before you is the resurrection of the dead. And so he was delivered once again from the hand of the Jews because that created quite a stir. Now the rest of Acts chapter 23 is Paul's nephew discovering a conspiracy to have him killed. And so he's taken by escort, 470 armed Roman soldiers, take him to Caesarea where he can be kept safe there. And if these Jews want to do anything about it, then they can go meet with Felix, who's the governor of the province. And so Acts chapter 24, they go up to meet with Felix and to put Paul on trial again. They bring an orator. They accuse him of many crimes. He's not guilty. He defends himself with Holy Ghost wisdom. And Felix delivers him from the hands of the Jews and says that nothing's going to happen to Paul. I don't see anything. I don't see that he's committed any crime worthy of death. And he keeps him there for two years with great liberties to have anyone that he wishes come and meet with him. And he's kept safe there in Caesarea for two years. But at the end of two years, Felix is replaced by Porcius Festus. And he leaves Paul bound, wanting to do the Jews a parting favor. And so we come to Acts chapter 25, with the governor of this province being replaced. The new governor is Porcius Festus. He's replacing Felix. And poor Porcius makes a trip up to Jerusalem to visit one of the major cities in his province. And he's reminded that he's got a problem. And that problem is our brother Paul, who's in prison back in Caesarea. So we take up in Acts chapter 25, and we'll be quick this evening through this chapter. Now when Festus was coming to the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him, and desired favor against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. Here's a man who takes an office. We often look at some of our politicians and wonder what they do. They have many things that we know nothing about. Their lives are filled with matters like this. This man has just received a new office. He goes up to Jerusalem to visit one of his major cities within the province. As soon as he gets there, he's accosted by the Jewish leadership that he has a man back there in Caesarea they want. He's not been in his office but a few days. I want you to remember the hatred that men had for Paul. The truth has always been hated. Abel worshipped God in the beginning truthfully. He brought the right sacrifice at the right time to the right God in the right way. 
Cain, his own brother, killed him for it. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. Those who do not want to obey God will kill those who do obey God. Truth is hated by the wicked. And these Jews, how long has it been since they made their conspiracy to catch him? Years. It's been years. But it didn't take them but just to see a new man in office and thereafter Paul again. Their hatred for him has not dissipated over these two years. They want him. And you should not forget the lesson. Wicked men hate the truth because behind wicked men is a wicked spirit. And that wicked spirit was a murderer from the beginning. So these Jews are craving the blood of our innocent brother, Paul. And don't forget the lesson. Show truth. Lay out the claims of the Word of God and you'll find out very quickly that people hate truth. They want their traditions. They want their feelings. They want their opinions. They want the things that make them happy, but they want very little of truth. But Paul said, Festus, Porcius Festus, our new governor, said, leave him there at Caesarea. And so again, the Lord is protecting our brother Paul. Because remember, the Lord's already told us where he wants Paul to end up. He wants him to preach in the city of Rome. And the Romans are going to take him there, safe. And with an all-expense-paid trip. Verse 6. And when he had tarried, this is Porcius Festus, the governor, when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down into Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. The man has no rest, does he? He's just spent ten days in Jerusalem. He's only been in office thirteen days. But the very next day, he's got to have a hearing because these Jews have followed him down from Jerusalem to Caesarea because they want Paul's blood. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem, stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Here's one of the lessons for us, and I'm going to get to repeat it. Here's one of the lessons for us. Let us live our lives in such a way with the fruit of the Spirit that I preached this morning that if we were ever put on trial, we could not be convicted of any of their charges. They laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Let our lives be clean domestically. Let our lives be clean financially. Let our lives be clean professionally. Let our lives be clean for the Lord's sake. So that if they're ever in a situation like this, what a testimony it is to have them laying many and grievous complaints, but they could not prove them. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. My brethren, that is a testimony. Against no man's religion have we offended them against the temple. Now we may offend them when we preach the truth, but we have not done anything to disrupt their worship nor to cause them any harm. He was free against any accusations of having violated the Jewish religion or the temple or Caesar. And I want to exhort you all to be careful in our paying of taxes, in our obeying every ordinance of man, in wearing our shoulder harnesses, 
and driving the speed limit and everything else that we can do and should do, we ought to do it for the Lord's sake so that we can say with a clear conscience, I am void of offense before God and man. Against Caesar, I have not offended in anything at all. Let us live that way. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, sounded like a mo- sounds like a modern politician, but all leaders do this from time to time to win the favor of the people. Everyone that rules wants to have subjects under him that are happy with them. And so there's only one of Paul, and there's a whole lot of Jews. This is a pretty easy decision for a man in the flesh. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem? And there be judged of these things before me. Did the Jews want Paul to be taken from Caesarea to Jerusalem? What would they do in the way? They'd murder him. I want you to notice that even in the previous verses where I didn't comment on it, it said that the high priest and the chief of the Jews were very involved in this conspiracy against him. The high priest and the chief of the Jews those men in a position of leadership that should stand for integrity and justice and righteousness are the ones that want the blood of our brother Paul. And so Festus says, will you, Paul, will you go up to Jerusalem where all the Jews might be able to get their facts together and be able to lay some charges against you? Will you go on trial there before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. What a courageous statement. But it's also a statement made by a clear conscience. It's easy to say words like this when you know that you have a clear conscience before God and men. And this is the way we ought to live. And if you hear me say it several times, I'm exhorting you to have the evidence of the God's character within you, the fruit of the Spirit that I mentioned this morning, so that whether in our lives we show the character of God or on trial, there is nothing that can be laid to our charge unless they bring false accusations, but nothing that can be proven against us. Paul knows that he's in Caesarea, which is the place where judgment was made for that province. He knows he's at Caesar's judgment seat. And he says, if I'm an offender, have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. That's a powerful Roman law that was in place in the nation of Israel. It wasn't Israel's constitution. Israel's constitution you hold in your hands. It has 39 books. It's the Old Testament. This was a constitution imposed upon them by a foreign usurping tyrant named Rome. But it was the de facto law in place for the nation of Israel. And Paul knew it well. He was a Roman citizen, and so he appeals to it. De facto law means it's the law in fact, whether it's the law in writing or not. The law in writing is of little value. It's the law that's in fact in a nation. That's why Jesus held up the the coin and said, why are you circulating these coins with a picture of Caesar on them if you're sovereign Jews? If you're circulating this money with Caesar's head on it, that means you've submitted your sovereignty to Rome. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
and you know how I apply that to our society. We circulate money that has the Federal Reserve written all over it, which is not part of our constitutional system. But it's the de facto government over our nation, which we willingly submitted to many years ago, and we willingly submit to every day as we circulate all these little pieces of paper that say, I am a willing subject of the Federal Reserve system. And not until you get rid of all those little pieces of paper saying you're a willing subject can we say that we have any other king because we have a de facto government in our nation. And that little principle that I just gave you would save a whole lot of trouble if people would just consider it. It's a well-known principle that when a money circulates in a nation, the money and the rulers that are represented upon it show who is in power. It's the de facto government, the government that is in power in fact. And Paul is wise. He knows the government that is in power in fact, and so he knows how to use their law. He says, I appeal unto Caesar. He has reached to the very top of the government. And brethren, he wasn't appealing to President George W. Bush. He was appealing to Nero. Just go home and click on your internet and go do a little search on Nero. I'm not going to take your time now to tell you about that pagan man. And I'm not going to bring any railing accusations against him. But he was a horrible Caesar. And the Caesars were horrible. But he used the law to defend himself. I want to apply this for a short little lesson to you. God, first of all, moved the heart of Porcius Festus to say, Paul, you want to go up to Jerusalem and be tried for these things? The Lord did that. The Lord holds the hearts of all kings in his hand and turns them like the rivers of water. Proverbs 21 and verse 1, that is a law by which we live, and that is faith that grabs a hold of that promise and believes it. We are not afraid of civil government because civil government is in the hand of God, and he twists it and turns it to whatever direction he wants to. And there's where we leave matters. We do all that we can within very limited, with our very limited opportunities and means, and the rest is in the Lord's hands. But remember, when Festus said that, it gave Paul this opportunity to appeal to Caesar. Because Paul knew his Roman situation, that he could appeal as a Roman citizen to be tried by the man himself in Rome, rather than be turned, being turned over to the Jews or be in danger of the transit from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And so he appeals to Caesar. My brethren, we had a family come and visit us recently that didn't believe in obeying the civil authority. And the Lord is merciful to us and revealed that to us after a few weeks. The number one question that they had about us from the very beginning, and a couple of us knew from the first service that they attended here that we had a problem, but we trust the Lord to reveal it in good time, and we were going to make sure that nothing happened for, to our congregation while they were here. Very first service, no problem. Very easy to spot. Because their question was, are you a registered church? Are you a registered church? That was the most important thing to them. Not can we see a confession of faith. Not what do you believe. Not what Bible version do you use. Not where do you stand on baptism since you don't, you're not called a Baptist church. But is your church registered? I want to tell you with thanksgiving that we are a registered church. And we're thankful for it. It's a privilege granted by our nation in which our nation says we want to help support your pastor. And so everything you give into the general fund or into the pastor's collection, 
we will subsidize that amount by giving you the tax deductibility of that contribution so that it will be less onerous to you in supporting your ministry and in supporting your church. It's a blessing. Amen. And I'm thankful for it, and we take advantage of it, and we use it. Because the Word of God tells us that, and I've told you this, but I'm going to repeat it because it's necessary. Kings and queens shall be our nursing fathers and our nursing mothers, and we should be happy to go to the breasts of those nursing mothers and take of them when they offer. And they offer. And being registered required nothing of us except an address. And we can change that address and not have to report a new address. All they want to know is when we get started, what we are. It's so simple. But here's the Word of God giving us an example of an appeal and use of civil authority for our defense. I want you to think about the Bible, all the Bible. This is why we read the Bible, even Bible story books. When Jacob and his family came down into Egypt, were they about to starve to death? Who fed them? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Were they afraid? Did they make Pharaoh sign some statement? Well, if we eat your food, we never want you to try to take advantage of us in the future. No. No. They settled in Goshen and ate well. Pharaoh wanted to make sure they had the good things of the land. They took God's people, took advantage. It's the principle from the beginning. When we can take advantage of nations and kings and kingdoms and governments because they offer themselves for our service, we take advantage of them. The people of God survived because Pharaoh took care of them. Why, even our poor Joseph wouldn't have had a wife unless he had taken the daughter of the priest of the Egyptians. That's correct. The poor man was down there alone. He needed a wife. So he married the daughter of the priest of the Egyptian religion. I want you to think about some of the Bible examples. David and Solomon. When David collected the materials for the temple and Solomon built the temple for the worship of God. This is the worship of God. Their religion. Who paid for a great portion of it? Hiram. King of Tyre. He sent his workmen, his craftsmen. He sent his marble. He sent his cedar trees. He sent so much because he loved David. You ought to read the exchange between Solomon and Hiram about who's going to pay for that temple. Hiram wanted to be in there as a major contributor because he loved David. And he said, obviously, God has blessed David with a very wise son. And yes, he did. Solomon was a very wise son. And so Hiram wanted to help build the temple of God. And so the temple of God that God filled with his glory was built by pagan money. And it's a principle of God's word. Amen. Nehemiah and Ezra, they're back rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the temple. They're running out of funds. They're also being accused of being a rebellious people. Who put his signature on the payment for the rest of that transaction? The kings of the Persians. The Persian government, pagan again, supported the rebuilding of the temple. We use pagan governments because there are nursing fathers and nursing mothers because, brethren, this is the glorious truth. The simple, humiliated Savior that died on a cruel cross for us and that we're going to remember in just a few minutes at his table with the bread and the wine. 
that lowly Lord Jesus Christ who first descended into this world, into the lower parts of it, and humbled himself even to the death of the cross, has been highly exalted. And he's at God's right hand. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's the king of all kingdoms. And he has changed the hearts of kings for the benefit of his people. That Lord Jesus Christ has preserved his saints from the beginning by turning the hearts of kings. I can remember Sarah possibly being in bed with a king of Egypt. Did the Lord let that king of Egypt even touch her? No. No. The Lord has always preserved. And we trust the Lord in all matters like this. And so I want you to look at this little chapter that we're looking at, Acts chapter 25. And when we see Paul appeal to government, he uses government for his own protection, and the Lord blesses him, just like the three examples I just gave you from the Old Testament. We are a registered church. We're thankful to be a registered church. We're not looking to become unregistered. We appreciate a tax law in our country that subsidizes ministers of the gospel, and we should give thanks for it. If and when there there comes a time when our nation tries to interrupt our worship of God, and and our nation passes laws to keep us from worshiping God according to His Word, it will be a different matter. But that hasn't happened yet. And so we're not going to fight them before there's a fight to fight. We're going to be thankful for them. We're going to be respectful. We're going to honor them. We're going to pay their taxes. And we're going to submit ourselves to them. When our government tries to interrupt our duties, we will resist. And we'll resist as wisely as the Word of God teaches us. But I want you to consider Paul's appeal to Caesar. And he was a horrible Caesar at that. Truth. That I mentioned to you this morning. The last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Truth always conducts itself in submission to the existing civil authority. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Truth submits to civil authority. You cannot expect your children to obey you. You cannot expect your children to trust you. You cannot expect your children to give you the benefit of the doubt when you ask them to do something if you are not going to give the government the benefit of the doubt when they do something. There is a little situation right now in Idaho There's two ways that you can look at that little situation in Idaho. And I ask you, on the authority of God's word, that you give the government the benefit of the doubt, not the rebels. That's right. Amen. Give the government the benefit of the doubt. We have a temptation inside of us, because none of us like authority by nature, that when we see a conflict with the big bully of federal government and a little family in a house, we immediately side with the little family against the big bully. But God wants us to always side with the big bully until life is at stake or his worship. Until life is at stake or his worship. And when life is at stake, it better be for the cause of the gospel and not for their problems like out in Idaho. Brethren, this is not my little personal bandwagon. This is the word of God from beginning to end because I am sick of disobedient children. I'm sick of rebellious wives. I'm sick of hearing about problem congregations and it all stems from the same rebellion. And so we have to give an example of submitting to authority and being willing to give the benefit of the doubt to authority because we do not know the circumstances. 
until someone has been out there for two weeks and interviewed 50% of the population in that town and gone back and searched all the tax records themselves, we don't know what's going on out there. We don't know all of the details. And when we don't know all of the details, there's a very simple thing to do. And do you know what it is? Yep. It's what we ask our wives to do when we don't give them all the details. And it's what we want our children to do when we don't give them all the details. Submit. Trust us and obey. Amen. So we trust and obey and give them the benefit of the doubt and we pray for them. And we live soberly and righteously and ask God to keep our nation free. Paul said, I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. So, the Roman Empire is going to take Paul to Rome to preach the gospel there. And before we can get out of the New Testament, we're going to find that some of Caesar's household are converted by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Oh, Lord, brethren, notice the Lord sometimes just changes men's minds so that Felix and Festus made decisions that protected Paul's life. Sometimes the Lord providentially causes a nephew. We don't know how young he was. He may have been this tall. A nephew to overhear a conspiracy for the taking of Paul's life. Sometimes the Lord will remind the Apostle Paul of Roman law. De facto law, not constitutional law of Israel, that defended him twice in just a couple of chapters. Remember, he was being bound up to be scourged. And he asked the question, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman uncondemned? And they were very frightened because that was a powerful principle of their law, that until a man was condemned, he wasn't to be scourged as a Roman citizen. And then here, he appeals to Caesar to protect himself from going to Jerusalem. The Lord operated in all three of those categories by blessing Paul with the wisdom. To, and we want to look at the Word of God and, and, and use that wisdom ourselves in the way we conduct ourselves in our nation. Verse 13, we move to a new personality that we're going to have in chapter 26. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. King Agrippa was one of those appointed kings. They were allowed the title of king by Caesar. There were several of them in the area of Judea and Palestine. And this is the son of the Herod that was eaten of worms in Acts chapter 12. And if you go read about this man Agrippa and his, what does it say? It just says Bernice here. Bernice was his sister. I'll just leave it at that, okay? I'll just leave it at that. Josephus and the other Jewish historians write about this couple in horrible language and descriptions. This woman had already had her uncle, and she left her uncle for her brother. Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, Here's Festus asking for some help from his superior, King Agrippa. There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him, to whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die, before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither, 
Without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. Against two, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Now this Augustus here is not, Caesar Augustus does not mean we have a Caesar with the name of Augustus. Caesar Augustus was used of many Caesars because Augustus was a name given to Caesar's beginning way back in the time of John the Baptist, meaning the August one, the great one, Augustus. It's still Caesar and it's still Nero, but he's called Caesar Augustus, just like he was in Luke chapter 3, even though it was a very different Caesar, but that's not important. The point we want to see here is that Porcius Festus has interviewed and put Paul on trial, and he's heard about his religion, and he's heard these accusations of the Jews. Now think what a man in his office would have available. Roman records that under Pilate, the governor of Judea, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified to death and buried. The Jews are all saying that. And do you know what Paul's saying? Yet. Not yet. He was buried. He did die and he was buried. Now you take an unbeliever and have the official record saying that there's a death certificate for Jesus, one Jesus of Nazareth, all the Jews are saying, we are eyewitnesses he died. And here's Paul saying, yes, he did die. But he has been raised from the dead, and I've seen him. Amen. That's superstition to an unbeliever, and that's precious truth to a believer. Mm-hmm. That is precious truth to a believer. There's one man standing there. Brethren, A little lesson. When was the last time the majority held the truth? When was the last time a large minority held the truth? When was the last time a medium-sized minority held the truth? When was the last time a small minority held the truth? I mean, show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible. It's always a very, very small minority that ever sees the truth. And there's one man there who's affirming that Jesus is alive. And all, all the marshaled arguments of the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem and the records of the Roman Empire, and they can multiply and they can fax and they can duplicate and they can scan and they can print in the newspapers the death certificate of one Jesus of Nazareth, but he was alive. And that's what we're celebrating tonight. Amen. He died for us. He laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave his life for us. And he was raised from the dead. And we're going to be raised from the dead because he died for us. And that's the testimony of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul makes that testimony whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Paul didn't affirm that he never died. Paul just affirmed that he was resurrected from the dead. And Festus just considered that superstition, as all unbelievers will. King Agrippa hears this description, that this Paul, and of course, King Agrippa has heard, listen, you couldn't be a Roman a king of that particular part of the world without having heard of this new sect called that way, called Christians by some, 
who are following one Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so Agrippa hears that there's a man here that knows about this, and that, that has seen this risen Lord Jesus Christ and is affirming that he is indeed alive. Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Does that mean he's a child of God? Just needs a little direction? I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. And so on the morrow, when Agrippa was come and burnished with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore I have brought him before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Now that's a nice introduction to a Christian, isn't it? Can we go on trial that way? Can we go on trial that way? This man has appealed to Caesar. I've got to send him to Caesar, but he's going to get there, and I don't know what to write Caesar. I don't know what crimes to lay against this man. So I'm hoping that all of you men can help me, and especially you, King Agrippa, we can find some crime that he's guilty of. And there is no crime, my brethren. And this is how we ought to live. Right. I, I've, you know that I haven't preached Acts 25 for two weeks. I, I studied Acts 25 long ago. And I wanted to know what the Lord had for us in Acts chapter 25. But as I went through the fruit of the Spirit and realizing the character of God, goodness, truth, peace, long-suffering, righteousness, and then looking at Acts 25, I see a lesson for us. Can we all live this way? So that when we're put on trial... Do you know how many times he's been on trial since Acts chapter 22? Go back and count up all the times he's had to defend himself and the years that have transpired that if it was possible to have brought together evidence that he was a criminal, it could have been brought. And here is the last man at the end of these years saying, I've got to send him to Caesar because he's asked to go, but I don't know what to tell my Lord Caesar. So can you please help me? Brethren, that is our calling. Amen. That is our calling. Amen. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verse 17, recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Can we provide things honest in the sight of all men so that we cannot be accused of any wrongdoing? This is how we ought to live as Christians. We ought to be above reproach and accusation, and if they want to falsely accuse us, they have nothing they can prove. Romans chapter 13, the first seven verses are about being subject unto the higher powers. There was nothing they could bring that he had disobeyed against a foreign usurper. It'd be like Fidel Castro taking over America. It'd be hard. 
It'd be very hard. But we would submit until our religion was called in question and we were told we couldn't preach the gospel or obey the precepts of the word of God. And there's a reason why we do these things. Verse verse 4 tells us that the minister of God, that is, the civil authority, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Verse 5, Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. There's two reasons we obey civil government. One, because we get in trouble if we don't. Two, for the Lord's sake. Conscience sake for the Lord. And that's, what, that's why I turn you to Romans twelve seventeen because we want to provide things honest in the sight of all men. We want to be able to testify, like Paul did, against Caesar, have I done nothing wrong at all? And to have Caesar's magistrates and governors and a king not be able to find anything wrong with him. Brethren, let's have clear lives that the the gospel of Jesus Christ might be exalted and glorified, that our consciences can be clear before him, that we can be an example of authority in our homes so that there is no inconsistency seen in our children witnessing our relationship to our government as we expect them to trust us and give us the benefit of the doubt and obey us. May the Lord bless us to trust always that the Lord is able to direct the hearts of kings. Here the Apostle Paul has gone through all these trials. There's conspiracies made against him. He's as safe as can be. He's had any visitors that he's wanted. He's about to get an all-expense-paid trip. It's not going to be a pleasant trip, but he's going to have an all-expense-paid trip to Rome. He's going to preach the gospel in Rome because that's where the Lord wants him. And if we trust the Lord, he will take us to where we should be. If we're trusting him and obeying him, May God bless us to be void of offense before God and man.